you know, Greg, I've been watching a lot of Cheers lately, which is not really my usual TV watching MO. But I will say if you are a little bit stoned and it's really late at night, it is a fantastic way to pass the time. Hey, guys, Helen here. On today's episode of The Eater Upsell, Greg and I are talking with cookbook author and generally cool person, Julia Tertian, whose new book, Small Victories, has already become one of my total favorites. But I want to take a second to get really real with you about the importance of subscribing and rating and reviewing The Eater Upsell. If you could take a second, just a second, and hit subscribe on the iTunes podcast store and give us a five-star rating, it would mean the world to us, both personally and for the future of this podcast that we hope you love as much as we do. But first, Greg and I are going to talk a little bit more about cheers. Also, don't do drugs. Oh, God. Cheers is so good. I I got into a Cheers jag when I was doing Midnight Feedings, actually. (laughs) Yeah, it's all on Netflix. It's also on TV land from like three to four in the morning or something. And then it switches over to a show I don't like. What is it? Oh, I love Lucy. Ugh. You do not love Lucy. But Cheers is like, Cheers is really entertaining. It's really good. It if, holds especially up, if you think of it as like, that that's a bar. Mm-hmm. Which it is. Which it is. <laughs> but if you look at like the all the work that they're doing, it's like they're doing the most, the silliest side work of all time. Like they're, they're pantomiming like they work in a bar. But if you actually look at the stuff they're doing, it's like the only thing anybody ever orders is a mug of beer. Mm-hmm. Um. Sam's like always wiping the bar down. Always. Always. Um, Usually if coach is in it, he's like wiping a glass, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, Carla is always just going in between like there's like three tables in this sort of back section. It's weird how many waitresses they have for like nine tables. Cheers is completely overstaffed. So I mean, if if they wanted to improve their bottom line, uh, first of all, you never would need Sam and Woody or Sam and coach on at the same time. No, that's true. Um, You could really just do it with one of the principal bartenders, Sam, Woody, or coach. But like coach has to be there because he has the emotional connection to Sam and coach. I mean, coach is demonstrably an ineffective bartender, Mm -hmm. but this is like a beautiful, like sympathetic father son relationship that he has with Sam. Yes. Yeah. It makes you, it makes, um, it makes both of them really likable that they are, that they have that, that relationship. Despite the fact that one of them is an asshole and the other one is a moron. (laughs) Sam's the asshole. Oh my God. Of course. That's his whole character. Yeah. He's this narcissistic, like, I don't know. But remember, in, is it the very, very first episode where Shelley Long as Diane gets her job by demonstrating that she is a remarkable memory for people's drink orders? Oh, is that? I don't even remember that. Yeah, That's hilarious. So I watched the pilot. And like the whole setup is like she she comes in with her boyfriend who's a professor uh-huh. and or her fiance or something. And they wind up breaking up and she's like very snobby and she's looking down on the bartenders and she's like, I could never be a bartender. I like went to Vassar or whatever. Right. And then like somebody drops like a really complex drink order, which mm-hmm. like is like six drinks or something. <laughs> Right. And Sam is like, what did you say? And then like off the cuff, she just repeats it back verbatim. And he's like, you're destined to be a cocktail waitress. Because that's the test every bartender gets. Right. Somebody lists six drinks and then they have to remember what they are. And it's like, oh, my God, like your calling in life is to serve people in this like also like as a bar. And like I know that that people sort of talk about Cheers as a touchstone or a touch point when they talk about opening their own restaurants or their favorite neighborhood bars or whatever. And the whole idea of like where everybody knows your name. Personally, I find that really intimidating because it 
means that when I go there the first time, I'm entering a club that I'm not a part of. Right. So but once you get past that initial hurdle. But that initial hurdle is a huge fucking hurdle. Like yeah. I get really anxious about like the perceived like cool kids club thing in the restaurant world even. It's a good point. If I'm really being honest with myself, any time I've tried to make a bar, you know, it turn it in make it like my cheers, it's never worked. No, because like you have to want it. And that's sort of thirsty and desperate. Usually you become, you know, your cheers is a place where you're kind of embarrassed to keep going back to, actually. Yeah, like, like. That's what, where everyone knows your name and your drink order. Right. They're like, ah, that guy, this jerk's in here again. Doesn't have anything better to do. Yeah. It's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the 80s were like a really golden era for the concept of the barfly. Mm -hmm. Like maybe it's, maybe it's that we live in a big city and the relationship of bars to like neighborhoods is slightly different here. But mm -hmm. I feel like there is not really that frequently like the regular who sits at the bar, who's there every day for seven hours or like the whole notion, right. like the New Yorker cartoon kind of notion of like the phone rings. And like, if it's my wife, tell her I'm not here kind of thing <laughs> of like, like guys like sitting at a bar morosely mm -hmm. for three hours between work and home. Like, does that still happen? I mean, that was definitely a sitcom trope, I feel like, you know, in many and many situation comedies that there is the place. Yeah, that that is like the uh, intermediary zone between work and home. The subtext on Cheers was that all of these people had lives outside of the bar that they fucking hated. Mm -hmm. Like they hated their lives. Right. And that was the only place where they actually were who they are is Cheers. And like in a way that's beautiful, but in a much bigger way, that's really sad that's true if you think about it all the um all the significant others in cheers are like these bad people it's like harpies know? right right and and the conceit of this show was like it's cool that you hate your job and you hate your wife or your husband and you hate like literally everything that happens in your life that does not happen within the confines of this basement level place where you get alcohol at least you have your bartender who you buy beer from who is like social contractually obligated to like you because and it's a, you'll buy more drinks. It's a safe space, you know? That's a and shitty it's like, safe space to have. Right? I don't know what it is. That show has definitely one of the best opening credits. It oh, just like kind ever. of like tugs at your heart for some reason with all the old like... Uh, the 80s were so into the Victorian era. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> the old Victorian era like drawings of... <laughs> drunk sort of, people from yeah, the 1890s. Yeah, drunk people or it kind of looks like successful, like people that just completed successful business deals like clinking oh. mugs together. They're, Definitely cheerful. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it's 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 part of a, a, a grand dramatic tradition of the black comedy, you know, like right. like the all of the signifiers of happiness and camaraderie and family and success and beneath it there is the deep, deep darkness that fills all of our souls. <laughs> well, I love that cheers is something that, you know, you watch when you're stoned. And I watch in the middle of the night when I shouldn't even be watching TV. It's like, you know. Those are kind of the same mental state. Yeah. But, you know, it finds you when you're It finds when you ready. when you need it. When you, exactly. <laughs> it finds you when, you when you need it. Cheers, nose. So our guest in the Eater Upsell today is Julia Tertian. Hi, Julia. Hey. I'm so glad to be here. Julia is a cookbook author and recipe writer and all around brilliant food person. Oh, thank you. Brilliant food person, brilliant collaborator to many big names and somebody who has contributed and is responsible for some of the great cookbooks, I think, of the last five, six years. Including That's Gwyneth Paltrow's cookbooks. The Yeah, I worked with her on the first two. Um, and then a whole bunch of Bouvet with Jody. That was a really fun one. And um, 
what did I do? Dana Cowan's book I worked on and Hot Bread Kitchen and a whole bunch of stuff. Some of the best books of the last couple of years. That's great to hear. I'm so glad you think so. So just from the jump here, I'm very curious about this sort of process of writing a cookbook mm-hmm. with, you know, um, you know, not just a chef, but a personality like because these books, you know, they have a lot of personality. It's about more than just the recipes and the food. It's lifestyle. It's, you know, reflecting of the, the person that you're working with. So, like, how do you start a project like this? Yeah, no, it's an interesting point. I always think um, my big joke is, I mean, food has been my everything my whole life. I've always loved to cook. Um, I've always loved cookbooks. And my sort of joke about it is like, I don't really care what we eat. (laughs) Um, So I love food. But I think to me, the most compelling thing is the story behind the food, which is, I think, why I love cookbooks so much. So whoever I'm working with or if I'm working on my own book, um, to me, it's the story is just as important as the recipe um, and the voice is just as important as the food. So getting the opportunity to work with so many different people has been this great thing of like getting to know different stories and voices and Yeah, that's really appealing to me. So with these books, how does the process begin? Do you have existing friendships with the people you collaborate with? um, Each time has been different. Um, There's not really, there hasn't been a formula for, at least for me, for writing a book or starting the process. Um, So it's been, I mean, I guess kind of the funny way to sum it up is like I've never really written a resume. (laughs) Like it's all kind of word of mouth and that kind of thing. And the first few books I worked on were definitely like um, kind of like personal relationship driven, I would say. And then um, kind of the logistics of things are a couple of years ago, I started working with a literary agent who I adore, who's awesome um, and has made my life a lot easier because I get to just do the work I love and she gets to do the work she loves, which is all the stuff I don't love. (laughs) So she gets to, you know, figure out contracts and agreements and stuff like that. Um, Sometimes it comes from the kind of collaborative projects, sometimes come from the authors I'm working with directly. Maybe we knew each other before they reach out to me or I reach out to them. Sometimes it comes through um, editors and publishers I worked with like, oh, hey, I'm working on this thing. Like we need someone to step in to help with, you know, this part of it or you know, these parts of it. Um, so it's all kind of different avenues, I would say. And you have your own cookbook coming out in this fall, right? I do. September 6th, Small Victories. Yep. Small Victories. It's Small so beautiful. Victories. We're looking Thank at you. it right now and it has like this incredibly nourishing, beautiful, homey, like comforting bowl of chicken soup on the cover. It's my favorite food ever. Uh, it's <laughs> such a good cover, I got to say. Thank you. Because oh. I, I really want to learn how to make that, but it actually seems like it's too soulful for me to know how to make it. It is not too soul. You can do it. <laughs> you can totally do it. The soup is actually, um, it's my Aunt Renee's um, chicken soup recipe. My Aunt Renee, who sadly is no longer with us, but her her soup still is. Um, but it really is my favorite food. And so much of this book is so, so personal. Um, and we were talking about like the stories behind the recipes. So this to me is like kind of the most important recipe. It's like, one, it's simple, um, but it means the most to me. So it felt like, felt like the right thing to put right on the cover. We get dozens, dozens and dozens of cookbooks a week in the Eater office. They just pile up on my desk and spill over onto Greg's desk. And he's very patient with that. Um, And so many of their covers, I mean, every cover is different, but they all have a very similar visual language where there will be sort of like, you know, this sort of like beautiful, perfect kind of aspirationally Pinterest-y cover. And your cover... (laughs) Pinterest is agitated. (laughs) It totally is, right? Like things are... If it's in a mason jar, it's Pinterest-y. But but I think your cover is is also like beautiful and aspirational and like gorgeously styled and gorgeously photographed. But like it's a rustic bowl of chicken noodle soup. Like this is not fucking around. You know, it's not like... 
it is beautiful, but it's not trying to be beautiful. Oh, and I'm it immediately glad to hear that. jumped yeah. out. Oh, thank you. That's really great to hear. That's sort of like mission accomplished, I guess. <laughs> I um, I we shot every. I worked with like the most amazing photographers. I worked with um, Andrea Gentle and Marty Hires, who are this awesome husband and wife team who are just awesome people and also as talented as they are, kind and cool. Um, we shot the entire book, including the cover, at my house, and for me. The whole just being able to do that um, felt really like kind of meant to be. And I really feel like it's very much like from my kitchen to yours. And it's and my home and my kitchen and the food I make like, I mean, I hope it's, you know, delicious, but it's like I don't, you know, I don't think there's anything intimidating. It's all real casual and relaxed. So this this is your first book with just your name on the cover, Just me, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. So what was different? Um, it was different because it was, it was a lot quieter. It was like me and my kitchen and my computer and not me in conversation with, you know, other people. Um, it was a lot, um, it was a more just sort of private, intimate experience of writing the manuscript, um, and, which I really loved. And then doing the photographs was this great moment of sort of bringing the book to life and doing the photo shoot for a cookbook is always like the best week in the process. Cause you really, it's like, it's existed. It's like a word document for months or years or however long. And then all of a sudden, like you see it come to life and it's really exciting. And to see my own sort of recipes and stories to see that happen felt very surreal. Um, and again, I mentioned we shot it at, um, my wife and I live in upstate New York and we moved kind of just in time for the photo shoot, which wasn't <laughs> the plan, but it worked out. So Andrea and Marty and their kind of amazing team, um, stayed with us and, uh, my friend Larry helped me who lives near us. And so we had like camp cookbook for a week. And it totally sounds like summer camp. Yeah, it was pretty great. It was, <laughs> it was wonderful. That's so fun. Did you miss the, I, I mean, I imagine that, that collaborating with someone on a cookbook gives you as the what do you think of yourself as the co-author, I guess? Yeah, the, it depends what, yeah, but um, that's probably the... Gives you some sort of structure and direction, right? And it maybe helps answer a lot of the questions. Like, it doesn't really matter what you would want to say. What matters is what they would want to yeah, say. Sure. And so yeah. you can, like, abdicate certain emotional responsibilities mm-hmm. for the content. Yeah, it's a nice world to be in often because I get to be... Um, just as sort of, you know, invested. I mean, I've been really lucky to work on books that I really care about and with people that I adore. And then, but it also lets me be objective in a way where it's like, we've got a deadline and like, and I'm there to be the one who kind of like hands things in. I mean, I I feel like my, um, if I were to put anything on a resume, it's just that I like, I like live by deadlines and I always like respect them because I feel like if I don't, I would never be done with anything. So I always see that as my role to kind of keep things on track. Were you on track with, uh, you know, your own book? I was, I was, I, um, Wait, are you literally the only author who's ever turned in her <laughs> manuscripts on time? I just turned, I'm going to like, this is hysterical. I'm working on a book right now with these great guys. I wonder if you guys know them. Um, Tom and Larry who run all these restaurants in Austin and, um, they have like Perla's and Josephine house and stuff. And we've been working on their Elizabeth street cafe book. And I just handed it in like a year early. Which a, was, a year well, early. It was kind of, they had like a long moment. I mean, we're not, it's not done. It's just like the first draft <laughs> and there's a lot to be done, but, um, we, it was kind of like a hysterical moment of like literally is, a year early. I want, I wanted to give it my all before, um, sort of small victories, like, you know, publicity eruption begins. So we just dove into it, but they were game to do that. So it was really, it was great. No wonder everyone wants to work with you. (laughs) (laughs) 
You're crushing it. Man, I want to hire you to do everything here too. We never hit anything on time. It's, I mean, I think it's, yeah, no, I, my, um, my whole life has been very punctual. My mom said, like, when I was a kid, my favorite game was to, like, take the tops off the markers and then put them back on. <laughs> like, I don't know what it is about my personality that enjoys that, but I guess I'm able to use it to my advantage. I I, I guess you really love, like, me's, like, top, like getting your mise en place all set. Getting and, like, stuff the ready. organizational yeah. aspects of No, timing is, like, I think... I mean, I really, everything about Small Victories is all about home cooking. It's like the thing that I just believe in most strongly, and it's part of my everyday life. Um, and when I talk to people about cooking and if they're, you know, they maybe they want to cook more or they're intimidated or something, to me, it's cooking each thing isn't really, in my mind or experience, isn't the hard part. It's timing everything is really the difficult thing. I think timing is like a really interesting thing to kind of talk about, but that's why I think everything's good at room temperature. Just make yeah. it ahead. I'm always really bad at um, making the menu. Like I'm great mm. at picking like one dish that I really want to mm-hmm. make or even like five dishes that yeah. I really want to make, but they have no coherence and yeah. they don't make sense together. And whenever I throw a dinner party, I'm like, okay, I know what my main course is. And now I just, I have no idea what yeah. else is happening. I like one, like if you're like that main course becomes like your anchor and everything else can be super simple. Like greens with lemon and olive oil and a loaf of bread or something like it doesn't those are the two things that I go with like it's like I'm just like here's like a hunk of meat or a bowl of pasta oh no pasta messes everything up because then I can't do bread on the side and then I'm just like spiraling you can do bread on the side you eat pasta with bread on the side sure I don't think that's aggressive I mean it's delicious (laughs) (laughs) I mean it's not like you know a top chef competition for some people eating at your house I'm very competitive in my dinner party (laughs) you know I've never I've never cooked for a dinner party in my life before what really never Never. No, I've had people over and I make one thing. Mm-hmm. What do you make? Oh, it's pasta or something like that or a big piece of meat. You know, usually it's pasta. But you too with your hunks of meat. <laughs> it's just yeah. easy. Yeah, you know? no, totally. And it looks very dramatic. Yeah, and yeah. like I cook very differently when I'm cooking for my – I apologize to literally everyone who knows me who's about to listen to this. <laughs> I cook very differently for my food world friends yeah. than for my civilian yeah, friends. Yeah, I get that. Because yeah. like I'm terrified to cook for my mm-hmm. food friends because – they're going to judge, even though I know they're not because I would never judge them. Yeah. Right. And we all like talk all the time yeah. about how whenever we go to non-food world people's homes for dinner, they're always like apologizing or like being like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I know that like this isn't foie gras with truffles. And I'm like, no, like, I love it. Yeah. You made it with love. No, I always think like the worst thing you can do to cooking is like give a disclaimer. Like, I think inviting anyone to your home and cooking for them is such like an act of love and I know how much I love to do it. I also know how much I love to be on the receiving end of it. And it's like, there's nothing to apologize for. And it's like, again, I think the food is like, it's a means to an end. And it's like a means to like, get people in your home, which is like a wonderful thing to do. So these dishes, are they, you have to go to a good small market to get these ingredients? Are these supermarket things? Are Um, these a mix of the two? I would say, um, it's int- I'm going to give you a longer answer <laughs> to that question. So I mentioned that um, my wife, Grace, and I live now in upstate New York. And so we moved from we're living in Brooklyn. I previous to that had lived in Manhattan for most of my life. Um, and I've always tried to kind of be aware of kind of the New York cooking world and bubble and access to ingredients. And like, what do you mean? Not everyone can go to Calustians and get like this amazing spice kind of thing. And now that we live outside of that, it's really I think it's kind of been very helpful for me as someone who creates recipes because I feel like if I can't get it at 
the supermarket in my tiny town, um, I'm either not going to call for it or if I do call for it, I'll tell you exactly why and also give you a substitution because um, I think I don't like um, I don't like being unapproachable. That's not something I feel comfortable with. So I think the the telling the reader why is so cool and so crucial and so missing from so many books. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the way that I have a lot of high minded thoughts about recipes, <laughs> but like the way that recipes are structured particularly in like the, the trend of cookbooks, I think for the last 10 years or so is head notes are usually like a lovely personal anecdote. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of like evocative adjectives about aroma or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and then it's a list of ingredients and a list of instructions. And it's rare that you get into the, into the, the like coherence of the dish, like mm -hmm. what's actually happening in a non-sciencey way. Yeah. And so that's so wonderful. Like, here's what the saffron brings. Mm -hmm. Like, here's why it's worth it to get za'atar or yeah. like whatever it might be. Yeah. No, that's, I couldn't agree with you more. And it was sort of my, um, it was a bit of like a guiding principle with Small Victories because I had, I'd been thinking about doing my own book for a while and I kind of had this sort of list of um, recipes and dishes in my head. I've always kind of kept in a very loose, not organized way. Um counter to my marker story. Um, I've always kind of kept track of things I've cooked. And so kind of had this sort of group of recipes I was thinking about, but um, it took me a minute to get kind of the hook of what would tie them together and also offer something that I felt like I hadn't quite seen before in this kind of package. And for me, it was this idea of small victories. So every single recipe has that personal head note and there's an anecdote and it's super personal and it's like a lot about um, food I grew up with and food I now make for my family. Um, but every recipe is also introduced with, I'm doing air quotes, a small victory, which <laughs> is like, it's like a tip or a technique. So every recipe has this kind of like very, um, kind of grounded purpose to it. Um, and I feel like there's like all these lessons in it. So it's like, it's, you know, it's emotional and it's personal and anecdotal and all that, but it's also like very, it's a really practical book. So I'm, I'm happy about that. So talk to us about this idea of small victories. I um, love that. Yeah. It's, um, I think it's kind of, you know, it's, my other kind of running joke is just I love coming up with book title <laughs> names and I really want to do a book of just book titles but not actually write the books um, and just concepts. So Small Victories was just this great way to kind of um, – to me it's like a it's a way to approach cooking and I think Small Victories – the cookbook is it's a great book for beginners or anyone kind of a little bit uncomfortable in the kitchen or scared or um, just starting. But it's also there's a lot for like really seasoned cooks as well. Um, and so, yeah, again, each recipe has like the small victory that introduces it. So there a lot of them are just super practical tips and stuff. Things like um, the example I always use is like getting pomegranates. Uh, the seeds out of a pomegranate without like making a mess. Um, but then some What's of your the, method for that? Um, underwater. Yes. Bowl of water. Yeah. I love that method. Yeah. And, and all that all white stuff. Exactly. Yeah. It's you so got it. Good. And it just like, it makes sense. Um, and then they're already like rinsed and ready to go. And then, um, and some of the small victories are a little bit like more, um, I hate to use the word theoretical because they're not like that kind of, you know, highfalutin, but like there's one um, in the dessert um, chapter, there's a, a peach and bourbon milkshake. And the story behind that was I had made this peach and bourbon ice cream. Well, I thought I did. And it was like for, I used to work as a private chef and it was, I, it was like a very high pressure dinner party setting. And I made this ice cream. I thought it was going to be this like, you know, hit. And it was like the middle of summer and the peaches were fresh and blah, 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 all that. And then I took it out of the freezer and it hadn't 
frozen because I put too much bourbon, which isn't like actually a a thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But I was like, had this moment of panic, like, oh, no, like the thing I made that I thought was going to be great is not what I thought. And then I was just like, well, if I put it in glasses and not bowls and straws and not spoons, it's like they're delicious milkshakes. And it's kind of like this funny dessert that maybe isn't that expected. And they like everyone loved them. And so the small victory with that is like sometimes you just need to call something something else. And that to me is a small victory. So the small victories come in all sorts of forms. But it's also kind of just like it's a nice way to approach the kitchen. But to me, it's also I mean, it's a little cheesy, but it's it's a nice way to approach life. It's like finding these small moments of, of you know, achievement and stopping to pause and celebrate them. And it's a, it's a good way to good way to go. How long did you work as a private chef? Um, kind of on and off for, I don't know, maybe like five, six years or something like that. I guess starting out of college, I would say more than five, less than 10. Was it, did you like it or was it like, you know? Um, I liked, I, I did it in a lot of different ways. Um, my favorite was anytime I had any, um, it was when I still lived in New York when I had clients who, um, I had a few clients who I would go to their apartment and just cook and basically like leave their refrigerator stuff, like as if they had gone to a prepared food store, but it's like food specifically prepared for them. (laughs) And that was nice because again, talking about timing of recipes, like nothing had to be done. Like I wasn't serving dinner and normally I would get to just be in these like beautiful kitchens and work by myself and put music on and come and go as I please. So that to me is like the best way to be a private chef because it's like on your own schedule and stuff. Um, And then the more kind of like cooking for a dinner party thing. Like I always found like a little bit stressful. Um, but it was like, there's something kind of fun about having that kind of adrenaline. And like, I never thought I'd be able to pull it off, but then I would, so that would feel good. But it kind of like, it was a little too much for me. I think I would your clients always say like, Hey, this is really good. I like this. Or was it more just kind of like, I am just, I'm cooking for them, but not getting feedback. I feel like a lot of it was a lot of, um, yeah, there was a lot of good positive feedback. And I think the thing that I got out of those experiences, um, private chefing was, um, you know, I was cooking in people's homes. So again, it like all, like everything for me comes back to home cooking and even, you know, anyone who's hiring a private chef, this is like, not like, this was like this high end moment. (laughs) Um, and, but they're not hiring me to, you know, I'm not Eric repair or something. Like, I'm not going to come in and make like amazingly beautiful restaurant food. That's not my background. I'm, I just, I'm the wrong person if you want that to happen. Um, so people are hiring me to make good home cooked food in their home. Um, so I've made like a lot of meatballs. I made a lot of Caesar salad dressing, that kind of stuff. So it was a really great experience of getting to, um, sort of see other families up close and cook in other kitchens. And it kind of just gave me a little bit more, um, understanding of home cooking in different settings and stuff. It also made me really appreciate anytime I could cook in my own home. Um, it gave that like even more meaning. Did you ever work in a professional kitchen? Um, I, I've spent a lot of time in them working with, um, people like Jody from Bouvette on her book. I worked with the fat radish guys on there. So I've spent time like while working in restaurant books in those kitchens, but no, I've never, I've never worked in a restaurant. So the the line about co-authoring restaurant cookbooks that I think we hear all the time is like, you know, you just sort of perch on a stool in the corner of the kitchen and watch what they do and turn it into a recipe. Mm-hmm. Is that how it was for you? Um, it depends. It's again, it's different on each one. It That was definitely true with Jody, who's one of my favorite people just in the world, period. Um, one of my favorite people I've worked with. And Jody... Um, and for anyone who's listening, who runs, she runs Bouvet in New York and now also in Paris. And she has Via Carota with Rita. And, uh, just um, the best restaurant. Yeah. And she and she and Rita are just like the coolest, greatest. And Jody's like one of the funniest. I, know, I could just go on and on about Jody. And um, 
but and I think Jody is truly like a genius and she and all of this genius exists in her head. And my job as um, her collaborator on her cookbook was to get some of this genius from her head onto a page. So it was definitely being literally perched on a stool. Um, and we worked a lot out of actually Rita's kitchen at Isodi because they are not open for business during the day where Bouvet is. And um, Jody, it was pretty magical. Like Jody would cook. I would sit on the stool. I'd watch her. I've gotten really good at taking notes while other people are cooking and approximating things and kind of slipping in a measuring cup where I can and just being able to eyeball stuff. So I would take notes on what she was cooking, but it was also a really nice time to talk to her about what she was cooking and get all the stories that informed all the head notes and all that. Because I think with, um, you know, a chef is someone who, who does something physical for a living and the idea of just sitting down with them the way we three are sitting down right now and just and just asking about their dishes. It's like, you're not going to get the great stories. You have to put something in their hands and give them something to do. So talking to Jody while she was cooking allowed me to really like get the best stories out of her. Um, so that, that was sort of that experience. But then on other restaurant books I've done, um, some restaurants already have things written down. Um, so I take kind of the kitchen binder and translate it, um, which is a lot of math, which I never thought was something <laughs> I was good at, but I can do it for kitchen stuff. Um, and a lot of restaurant recipes are written, you know, to huge scales. Um, they're always written like in grams. Um, and there's very little instruction because their recipes written usually by a chef for other chefs. Um, and my, I think, I mean, I guess if I were to say I have any specialty, it's like writing stuff for home cooks. Um, and so I spend a lot of time, I think of it as like translation. Um, it's like taking this one language and turning it into another. So yeah, so it's different each time. Are there things that you wish, um, restaurant chefs understood about how home cooks cook? Um, I think it's, it's funny cause I think, um, I think they're really different things and I don't think, I think there's this kind of expectation that a lot of restaurant chefs will just be able to produce recipes for home cooks like it's a one-to-one -one thing and it, it really isn't and I think and there are people like me who can help you do that if that's what you want to do um, but I think it's also okay if, if that isn't the case and some things there are plenty of things I love to eat in restaurants that I I mean I feel comfortable cooking most things but I don't want to make it home and part of the reason I love eating in a restaurant is I don't have to do the work that goes into it um, but if there's something I wish maybe they in general knew more about maybe just to make it easier for them when they're asked to write the recipes is just remembering that the home cook has to do everything. Like they're the ones shopping for it. They're the ones cleaning the vegetables, the, you know, meat or whatever it is. They're the ones serving it. They're the ones washing the dishes. Like at a restaurant, there's usually like a lot of people involved in that chain. And at home, it's just usually one person. Um, so I think keeping that in mind just to simplify things and knowing like a simple a simple version of what you do at a restaurant can be great for at home. It doesn't have to be the exact same thing. I've always wished that like, so I, I, I tend to think, like I said, I have very high minded thoughts about recipes, but like I tend <laughs> to think that, that cookbooks um, fall generally into one of two categories. Mm -hmm. Like they're either descriptive or prescriptive. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very good way to sum them up. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I feel like, you know, descriptive cook, descriptive cookbooks are like, 11 Madison Park or mm -hmm. Alinea, like they're documents of how something happened or, or sometimes like, you know, that giant gorgeous Thai street food mm -hmm. book from a couple of years ago, like they're documents of a place and a time. And 
you could maybe cook from them at home, but the purpose of the cookbook is not for you to cook from them. And then prescriptive cookbooks are like, here's how to do this thing. We expect that you're going to do it. And as soon as I realized this, like all cookbooks started to make sense to yeah, me. Yeah. But I, I wish so deeply that like it would just say right on the cover, like oh, here's what I expect yeah, you to yeah. do with this there book. There could be two sections put of this, the store. Put this on the shelf in your kitchen or put this on the coffee table. Exactly. Yeah. I've always thought about that distinction too. And to me, I feel like exactly what you said. I always thought of it like you, if you're going to divide the world into two things, like which is always tempting to do to understand things. And it's like, <laughs> yes, the, let's. <laughs> Let's make a big list. But I feel like exactly what you said. I've always thought of it like you go to a cookbook either for inspiration or information. Um, and so good. But it's the also same. Also a rhyming yeah. too. Like, this is great. We got it. <laughs> More on our book title list. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, because like if you look at the Amazon reviews for some of these like, you know, you know, doorstopper mm-hmm. tomes that are these, you know, documents of a moment in time or in, in space, like the majority of the reviews will be people saying like, you know, this is amazing. And it was like a great, you know, souvenir of the incredible meal that we all had at 11 Madison Park. And then every so often there'll be someone being like, I do not understand how you expect me to make this for my family on a Thursday. I kind of think, I mean, my, not that anyone's (laughs) asking me (laughs) what my solution is for it, but I feel like with those kind of the coffee table books, the, you know, descriptive, the inspiring ones, I kind of wish like, there wasn't the expectation that they need to even have the recipes. Like, cause I feel like if people aren't necessarily using, like, I know how much work it takes to write a recipe, to test it, to, you know, make it functional. Um, and if, if they're not going to be used, like, I mean, part of me wonders, is, is it worth putting in the work to put them? Like maybe it's beautiful photographs of the recipes, stories about what they are, how they came up with them, maybe some notes on the technique, but do you think people would still buy them? That's a really, I kind of want someone to do one and see how it goes. Maybe it'll be a hit. Um, I feel like you never know. I feel like there's, I think we all just in general in life, like I think there's a lot of kind of expectations and rules we all follow without even realizing it. And I think in creating cookbooks, that's one, like every cookbook needs to have recipes. Maybe, maybe they don't. I don't know. I would love the, I would love the, you know, the beautiful cookbook that's like, you know, I have a coffee table book that didn't have recipes, but I'll also say I've met a lot of chefs, including chefs that work in some kind of like scrappy restaurants in Brooklyn who have like the Noma cookbook mm-hmm. and modernist cuisine. Mm-hmm. And like, they have all these things and they're like, that's how I learned to cook, man. It's like, I just like flipped through those books. And I was like, I'm going to make a linea or whatever, yeah. which is a kind of weird, like, I'm like, really? That's how you learn to cook. Huh? It's very, uh, it's very protracted way of learning, you yeah. know, technique, but no, I think, I mean, a lot of those, um, kind of fancy restaurant cookbooks definitely, I think are written, by chefs for other chefs, um, which is again, totally fine. Like not every rest, not every cookbook has to be written for like the home cook. I just think from what I understand and I could totally be wrong and it would be interesting to speak to like a publisher about this, but I think home cooks are just a larger buying audience than chefs. So I guess that's appealing. I mean, I haven't talked to every chef that's made a fancy coffee table cookbook, but I do feel like the impetus for a lot of them is not to make, you know, this recipe book. It is just to have this fancy souvenir of this time in their life when their restaurant was hot shit, you know? No, for sure. And I think it's also, it becomes like a little bit of like a you know, those are the books that a lot of restaurants will display in the front of the restaurant. And it's kind of this like, 
hey, I've got this in my collection. I feel like it's like the way people, you know, with record collections, that kind of thing, like sneaker collect, like whatever it is. It's yeah. like buying the T-shirt when you go see the Broadway show totally. or the concert. Because yeah. Right? Yeah. like you're, you're spending this much money to go to the restaurant, plus presumably in a lot of these cases, like to fly to the Basque country or yeah. wherever it is, you yeah. know, and like, what do I have to show for it? Besides for Instagrams, I'm going to get this cookbook. And, you know, for yeah. Instagram. It's like my theory about um, like green juice is like it always comes in a transparent cup. Like and would people drink it if like you couldn't see that they were drinking it? Like it's like a bragging right it's kind a of fully thing. performative yeah. beverage. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> That's a really good point. No, I think mean, I think that and, and, you know, Greg, to your point, I think like very frequently, I think when you when if you read interviews with with the chefs who publish these like gorgeous hardcover documents of their high end restaurants, a couple years later, they'll say like, OK, I'm ready for another one because this was like the yearbook of that era. And now once it's written down, like it's been frozen in amber, I don't want to deal with it anymore. We're on to new things. Yeah. And you get that kind of like Farron Adria thing where he would do these annuals with El Bulli where you could you could fill a bookcase with his books because it was just like, you know, El Bulli 2001, 2002, 2003. No, I think it's no different than like a, a band or like a rock star with an album. And I kind of think like a lot of chefs want to be rock stars and vice versa. And they all like, you know, and. I think it, it sort of makes sense. It's like the greatest hits of this year. Somebody should do that with just some bar and grill in a nowhere town. And just, I bet it would be really interesting, you know, treat it like it's El Bui. Right. Like in 1998, they shift right. chicken finger purveyors from Cisco to U.S. foods. And it was a really major shift in their tone and philosophy. So after Small Victories yeah. comes out, you're working um, with a team in Austin on there. Yeah, we're working on um, it's a really fun book. Um, they're a. It's sort of a Vietnamese restaurant kind of slash French bakery. So I've been working with them on their manuscript and recipes and um, sort of signing up maybe for another book proposal for a restaurant now. And I kind of I had this moment with I loved writing Small Victory so much. I'd really it was just like the greatest sort of career moment to just sit down and have the opportunity to write it. Um, and I had this a little bit of like a identity crisis when I handed it in because I was like, oh, I love that so much. I should do that all the time. And it's, and I couldn't, you know, I put everything into it and I was like, I need to accumulate more life experience and time before I write another. So I, um, you know, I'm doing a lot of collaborative work just as I always have and starting to think about book number two, but mm. taking my time. Are you excited about all the publicity you're going to get to do for this? I'm, I'm excited. It's funny because I've worked on so many cookbooks, but because I've never worked just on my own until Small Victories, I've never um, promoted a book. And I like had no idea that it was like a whole other. I mean, like I I think it's going to be really fun. I'm enjoying what we're doing right now. This is great. Um, and I feel like, yeah, I have like a book tour and everything coming up. And I kind of I didn't realize how much kind of goes into all that. So that's been a nice opportunity to learn something new. So I'm looking forward to it. We know you love uh, being a home cook, but do you go out to a lot of restaurants or is that a, Um, do you compartmentalize restaurant going and home cooking? I mean, now that, um, uh, Grace and I live in upstate New York, we, we really don't go out very much. Also, um, Grace was diagnosed this year with type one diabetes. So it's changed a lot of what we eat and how we eat. Um, and it's made me extremely grateful for the fact that we, live in a place that makes it very easy to cook at home all the time. Um, 
I kind of have this, this is like a whole sidebar. I actually think it's very difficult to cook in New York City. I think like schlepping groceries, I think it's often cheaper to eat out or to order food. Um, but that's another topic. So we, where we live, we don't really go to restaurants really at all. And we, um, a lot of a really nice part of living where we live now is that um, all of our friends who also live upstate also really love to cook. So there's like us going out means going to someone else's house for dinner, which I love. Um, and but when we come into New York together or separately, honestly, the only restaurants I want to go to are Jody and Rita's. <laughs> I, like to me, it's like it's like going home. Like I love their restaurants so much. I'm the same way. I, I go to the same restaurants just over and yeah. over again because theirs and Pearl Oyster Bar are like my favorites. Oh, so it's a, so it's a little like. West Village I mean, corner. There's, there's multitudes of cuisine in that little cluster of four, yeah. though. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. I know you can get everything. So Ah, it's so much fun. This is such a cool <laughs> book. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Julia, we have come to the portion of our podcast that we call The Lightning Round. Ooh, I love it. Um, so we're just going to throw a bunch of questions at you and see what sticks. Okay. Right. Don't overthink, right? Yeah, okay. exactly. So you can. You can, over, you can think as We have no time constraints here. We certainly never overthink anything. No. <laughs> <laughs> Title of your book. Quite, yes. Okay, so lightning round question number one mm-hmm. is you're in the airport and you have an hour to kill and you have 50 bucks in your wallet. What do you do? 50. 50 uh, bucks. 50 bucks. <laughs> bucks or bucks? You have 50 to 100 bucks in your bucks. You, you can spend some money Ooh. and you have an hour to kill. Okay. What do you do? Any specific airport or just airport in general? Airport in general, but if you have a favorite thing yeah. to do at a favorite airport, I want, that's the sub, yeah. sub question. I once, um, if, I, I have only done this once, but I would do it again if I had cash to burn in my pocket um there was like a i'm not like a um i'm not into like um i don't know what to call this like spa stuff very much like i'm not someone who gets like my nails done or Mm -hmm. wears makeup i mean sometimes i clean them up but anyway too much information and overthinking i once got like one of those 20 minute back massages at an airport which was like the best thing to do in that time and totally made me feel like relaxed so i would if that was available i would absolutely do that love that i can't remember what airport but it was great they're in a lot of airports now and i maybe look up whether they're in airports before i go to them and sometimes Mm. i try to build an extra time because it's really fun it's like shake shack um, yeah Yeah. it's like let's go half an hour early (laughs) right we're gonna have fun um you said you studied poetry in college Uh next lightning round question is what is your favorite poetic form um i like i to be honest i like kind of contemporary not too much form um but I don't know. There's something pretty beautiful about like a perfect sonnet, though that's not something I would write, but I like reading them. Petrarchan or the other one? I can't remember. Oh, God. I can't even. I, know, I don't just know. Try to dredge up <laughs> my college poetry me. memory. <laughs> Petrarchan or Limerick? Is that the yeah, other one? Yeah, that's the other sonnet. Limerick. <laughs> okay. So you're driving in the car. You're on a road trip. Mm-hmm. You're by yourself. You're speeding down the highway um, and you're listening to some music and you're singing along to it. Sure. What is it? Beyonce. Beyonce. Oh, I mean, what's which, spe- which Beyonce? Which, yeah. I mean, Lemonade right now is just our What's soundtrack. your favorite Lemonade song? Hold Up. Okay. It's I'm amazing. torn between Hold Up and Freedom. I don't think we need to choose. We don't. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> She's given us so many blessings. She's. <laughs> so besides Small Victories, your mm-hmm. own cookbook, what three cookbooks would you give to someone who is just learning how to cook? Oh, great question. Um, I would give them, I would give them Ina Garten's, um, I believe it was her second book was Parties. That I love that one. I would love them all, but I really love that one. Um, and I think that's a real like um, kind of makes entertaining approachable kind of thing. Um, my other, my like favorite cookbook ever um, 
is um, Lee Bailey's Country Weekends, which was sort of like a precursor to Ina's, I would say. Um, I wonder if she I think she might agree with that. And that's a question for her. I think that to me, for me, it was a really inspiring book. So maybe it would be inspiring to someone else, too. Um, And then third one, I would go with Edna Lewis's. Yeah, I think she like just total home cooking, great American Southern cooking. Awesome. All right. So buy all three of those. Yeah, that's a guy. I, I actually had <laughs> I not heard of none of them. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Oh, great. No, they're three really good ones for sure. They all sound like kind of different journeys a little bit. Yeah. So yeah, Frank, that's so beautiful. <laughs> hey, I just you're good at describing them, you know? <laughs> Um, okay, so lightning round question is, okay, you're at the bar in heaven, but you're not dead. You don't need to think about that. You're <laughs> just, just like at a heavenly bar. bar. Just a it's bar the best called bar. heaven. Okay. And the, the bartender bar. knows the bartender knows your favorite drink. Yeah. You walk up, you know, they pour it for you. What is it? Um, I I feel like I used to drink a lot more than I do these days. I think lately if I want like a strong drink, I'm I like a vodka on the rocks with olives. Wow. It's like to you me, because you hard. get like a little sting. I don't know. It's nice. Go but I just need like half of one and I'm gone. Like I'm under the table. <laughs> if yeah. somebody's like, what what vodka? Do you have a vodka mm. or is it just a... I like kettle one, but I think I do because my um, dad drinks it. So I'm like, oh, that's my dad orders. <laughs> I, love that. I mean, that's the reason I drink bourbon is because my mm. dad drinks bourbon. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, yeah, dad. Sweet. I like that. I don't know. What's your favorite form of social media? Uh, Instagram. And what's your handle for those listeners? Just my last name. Good handle. Who are some great people we should all be following? Um, I think my wife, Grace, um, has a great feed, which is her site. It's at Design Sponge, and she um, posts really beautiful stuff. So, I mean, I know I'm biased, but I really like that. Okay. And last lightning round question, if you could do something that other than, you know, being this cookbook author, Mm -hmm. this collaborator and former private chef, what would it be? Um, Lately, I feel like everything goes back to this, like, we've moved upstate to the small town thing. We're getting like a little bit more involved in local stuff. Um, And right now, my answer to that question would be, um, I feel like I'd be a teacher. I love that. A teacher of small children? Yeah, Little Small Victories. <laughs> small Victories is the name of your school. Oh, my God. And on that perfect closed circle note, oh, my God, this is that was brilliant. You wrapped that up like a pro. <laughs> you clearly know what you're doing. That poetry major really came in. <laughs> oh, my God, that was amazing. Julia, thank you so much for thank coming you. by. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You guys, really fun. check out Small Victories, which is available in September. September in stores and pre-orderable on all sorts of bookselling yeah, websites right now. books are sold. Thank you so much. Super. Thanks, Julia. The Eater Upsell is recorded in Vox Media's exquisitely beautiful Midtown Manhattan studios. Your hosts are Greg Morbido and me, Helen Rosner. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. Our producers are Patrick Bulger and Maureen Giannone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our studio team is Miles Yule and Alex Ulreich. And of course, the most important person involved in the creation of all of this is you. Yes, you. Thank you, beautiful listener, for being who you are. <laughs>